Vaughn, is it true that you're pregnant? I cannot believe I had to find this out on Instagram. Um, yeah, guys, FYI, we never speak anymore when we're not recording so that we can keep all the juicy stuff fresh for you. Fresh. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm happy for you. Hello, and welcome to the bonus episode of Fanfare Podcast Season 1. The Fortnightly Culture Review Podcast with Emma Knight and Monica Ainley DLV. So, wait, Emma, does this mean you haven't prepared some overcooked meat and pasteurized cheese for this dinner party? Oh, no. Well, I'll be damned. That's a very good idea, Monica. I'll go do that right now while you introduce the special guest who will be joining us for today's imaginary dinner party with Joan Didion. <laughs> okay. Um, so Ellie Pithers is a writer, digital consultant, and contributing editor at British Vogue. I met her when she brought me on as a contributor at British Vogue, and we've been firm friends ever since. The intense writer-editor bond is for life. Ellie is also a fount of information about many things, notably the late, great Joan Didion. You probably know about Joan Didion, if only because of the outpouring of images and tributes on social media upon her death last December. Or maybe you're familiar with her seminal 1969 essay, Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which remains an essential portrait of America in the 1960s. Or maybe some of the fashionistas among us picture an older, more frail, but still incredibly elegant Didion in that Celine by Phoebe Philo campaign. In any case, it's clear that Didion is a cultural icon, and therefore, a couple of months after her death, we could not resist latching a bonus episode onto the end of Fanfare Season 1 in her honor. She is, after all, one of our ultimate dream dinner party guests, as, of course, is our dear friend Ellie Pithers. Oh, speak of the devil. Is that the door? Hi, Ellie. Hello. Thank you for Hello. coming. I'm I'm so excited. I'm I'm furnished with um, some salted almonds for Joan, and I'm I'm wearing a sweater dress, and I'm I'm ready. You look great. Where are you joining us from? I am in Paris at the moment in my in my sister-in-law's apartment because it's much quieter than mine. Well, let's have a very cold glass of Coca-Cola and start thinking about our night tonight with Joan Didion. Maybe we should start with fashion because Joan was more of a fashion person than a food person, as in there is like some question as to whether she really consumed much food at all, slightly worryingly. Mm, I take your point, Monica. I think we do. I think we should get dressed first. Let's get dressed. Now, obviously, you know, Ellie and I are both fashion journalists. We know that there's been a real like fashion cult of Joan Didion fashion. It's a bit niche, but it's a real thing in the fashion industry. I suppose Didion was known for her style like throughout her career. I mean, she started off as a Vogue writer, but she also um, came to sort of perhaps the peak of her fashion glory at a much older age when she was the face of Phoebe Philo's Celine campaign. Well, actually, interestingly, the Celine campaign was not her first campaign. She was actually in a Gap campaign. She was uh, not. With Quintana. Oh, there you go. In uh, 1989. She was in uh, uh, where she's, there's a beautiful black and white picture of them, which actually I had seen before, but I never realized was a Gap classics 
campaign and the tagline was it's how you twist the fundaments into something new gab classics um and they're both wearing again a kind of black black polo necks um and Joan is wearing a kind of ne- a, ne- a long necklace, which is quite similar to actually what she ends up wearing in the in the Celine campaign. Um, but yeah, I think she she had a very precise sense of style. Um, she she didn't deviate very often, um, but she's clearly interested in style. You know, she writes about when she's writing and observing people. Clothes are quite important, so she'll often point out that maybe someone is wearing a poochy bathing suit by the pool or, um, you know, that they're wearing a, a Levi's jeans and cowboy boots and the cowboy boots are not ironic. They're, they're quite literal. The girl is from cowboy country. So she's clearly very clued into the kind of, the signifiers, I guess, of clothes, what they say about you, those unspoken codes that come across depending on what you're wearing. Um, and I think that sort of specificity is in her writing as well. Absolutely. She does talk in several of her essays about abstractions versus the particular and how she sees herself as really more of a connoisseur of the particular. Um, I, I actually think she does very well with abstractions, but you know, in her own, by her own telling, it's the particular that she sees herself as studying and observing and, and putting into words. Uh, and fashion is such an example of that. How would you describe the Joan Didion particular of dressing? Well, I think it's quite, I mean, Monica feed in here, but I think it's it's classic colours, often black, uh, white shirts, um, a lot of blue. Then there's the odd kind of um, funky scarf that she sort of throws over her shoulders. Certainly later in life, I think she was wearing a lot more kind of grey cashmere and cosy, cosy sweaters and sweater vests. Um but but earlier on in her life, she I think it, I think it changes, you know, as she grows older. Her her taste is always quite classic, but um, she definitely has a kind of California low key, you know, slightly more bohemian, I'd say. And then when she comes to New York, she's dressing in a slightly different way. Yeah, I think she does have some Celine pieces in her wardrobe because when the New York Times interviewed her when the when the campaign came out, she mentioned that. The store was quite near her apartment in Madison. And so she had popped in and bought a few pieces, although she declines to say what they are. (laughs) So she's no longer afraid of Madison Avenue in the morning or maybe she's shopping in the afternoon. I think she's just popping in once she's had her Coke and her cucumber sandwich (laughs) set up for the day. I think this dinner party is going to take place in L.A., whether it's in LA. Um, yeah, of course. I think that's what she would want. So so this is going to be in the big spooky house. Yes. The, the two, okay, so the two candidates are the spooky house in the senseless killing neighborhood of Hollywood or, or the Malibu house constructed in part by Harrison Ford, the young strapping young contractor. There's something about the spooky house, guys. I don't know. From what I've read, and I correct me if, if you guys interpret this differently, but the time of their lives that they lived in the senseless killing neighborhood was more of a party phase for them. And I think it was a really big party phase. Like, I think they entertained constantly. Yeah, and there's lots of, um, I mean, I also was a little worried about how much food there would be at this dinner party. So I've got some snacks in my bag in case I need to get a bit of energy. (laughs) (laughs) But there are lots of accounts of Joan being a fantastic cook 
Uh, one of her friends describes her as the kind of woman that could cook a meal for 40 with one hand tied behind her back. And apparently she was cooking beef Wellington for 40 people in the spooky house, um, as well as parsley salad and various other meals for the great and the good of Hollywood. So um, I'm very happy to be in the spooky house. I think it, I think it's a cool vibe. And hopefully if we're in the spooky house, we can go for a spin in the Corvette, which is all I've ever wanted in life. Oh, the dream. With Joan driving. I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read from the White Album about the house. In the years I'm talking about, I was living in a large house in a part of Hollywood that had once been expensive and was now described by one of my acquaintances as a senseless killing neighborhood. This house on Franklin Avenue was rented and paint peeled inside and out and pipes broke and window sashes crumbled and the tennis court had not been rolled since 1933, but the rooms were many and high ceilinged. And during the five years that I lived there, even the rather sinistral inertia of the neighborhood tended to suggest that I should live in the house indefinitely. In fact, I could not because the owners were waiting only for a zoning change to tear the house down and build a high-rise apartment building. And for that matter, it was precisely this anticipation of imminent but not exactly immediate destruction that lent the neighborhood its particular character. Oh, I love that. Okay, I think we definitely have got our decision. And by the way, while we're on the White Album, I just want to remind people, and I have banged on about this on other podcasts a million times but um in the so in the collection of essays the white album in the essay the white album is her um two pack and wear list which is one of my favorite pieces of didion fashion referencing it's about what she would pack and wear um while traveling as a reporter and i would encourage people who are interested in how to build a travel capsule wardrobe to refer to it. Although I have a bone to pick with that. Oh, do you? Yeah, ah. and I have it. I I have a problem with the packing list. Okay, and hit I me. feel I need to just get it off my chest now mm-hmm. before no underpants. Arrives. One bra, but no underpants. <laughs> well, one bra, but also um, having adopted something of a capsule wardrobe myself when I moved from London to Paris and I could not bring my entire wardrobe with me. Um, so most of my clothes are at my parents uh, in their loft. So thanks, Andy and Sai, if you are listening. I'm very grateful. Um, but I basically, you know, I followed Joan's rules and I bought my shirts and my jeans and my camel coat and my classic clothes and my loafers. And after two months, I just feel so, I felt so joyless. I had no frivolous things in there. There was nothing very fun in there to to kind of jazz up the evening. So I, I found myself missing, you know, silly things like my Isabel Moran silver trousers, which my boyfriend hates. And most of the people in London think look like David Bowie. Um, but you know, I really miss them. And Joan, Joan doesn't have any of those frivolous little things in her, in her packing list. It's very... Can I hypothesize for a quick second about this? Because from my, and I could be totally wrong here, but from my understanding, the packing list was for when she was needed on a reporting trip at a moment's notice. And this was to make sure that she had, you know, her bourbon and her soap and the things that were necessary. And so what she was packing was in part a disguise. It was like Joan as wallflower outfits, you know, Joan who can pass for 
not quite hippie, but not not hippie either, you know, who could be on the hate in, you know, talking to the macrobiotic apple pie baking, uh, you know, hippies without seeming square, but without the police thinking that she's one of them either. And, you know, it was her fly on the wall, neutral, neither camp list, which definitely is not a silver trousers kind of list. I think she would applaud those. I have, I really do. And I think maybe you should wear them tonight. <laughs> Maybe I should. No, I agree. I think I think she mentions in the packing list the, the desire for deliberate anonymity. So as you're saying, she wants to be the wallflower who can observe at a distance and quietly take in the dialogue. But I think funnily enough, what has happened with the packing list in the fashion world is that it's been taken as a sort of fashion manifesto when actually it was a working list of how to how to disappear from view in order yeah. to get better quotes. Yeah. Which is still useful for a journalist. No, but it's a good point. Uh, it's I a guess. good point. It's such a good point. Because when she's leaning against, and it's a black and white photo, so you tell me if you know the color of this outfit, but the kind of like jersey long skirt or whether it's a dress, I'm not sure, but the like famous cover of the White Album photo where she's leaning against her Corvette, like that, she's not disappearing in that. And I really associate that look with Joan. No, Dave. and she also wore like a lot of kind of... Uh, bohemian printed dresses when she was in Malibu, which is an option for us tonight as well. So I feel like we all could wear like our own. Maybe one of us can be New York Joan. I'm happy to be New York Joan, you know, but there's there's room for all of that fun stuff as well. But I feel like maybe we need to move on because we don't have a lot of time. Okay, but we do need to have flowers in our hair. Just quickly, important. Flowers? Gardenias, orchids. A bit of frangipani. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's not forget those. Carrying, yeah, always with the flower behind the ear. And Ellie, I liked what you had said earlier about tying our hair up in ribbons to do the cooking. That seems both practical and kind of just lovely. <laughs> yeah, there's a picture of her cooking. Uh, I think it's in Malibu, actually, and she has a big orange Le Creuset pot on the, on the stove, and she's got her hair in these kind of they're not quite plaits, I don't think, but she's got sort of scraps of fabric in ribbons in her hair, um, which gives her this sort of quite super domestic Joan look, which I quite like. Yeah, that's interesting. It's an interesting side of her. So we'll have cold Coca-Cola and we will have bourbon and we will have toasted California almonds sent by her mother in Sacramento in tins. We will have cucumber and cress sandwiches, although it may remind her at this point of Quintana's wedding, and that might be poignant, um, but I do believe that those were a staple throughout her life. And I think the parsley salad is an excellent notion alongside, I mean, why not beef Wellington for 40? So that does lead us to the question, will we be 40? Are we inviting Jim Morrison? Are we inviting John Wayne? Who's coming? I mean, selfishly, I'd kind of like it to just be the four of us. Oh, I kind of want John Wayne there. Come on, guys. She would have a meltdown. She loves John Wayne. She loves John Wayne. Maybe John John Wayne can come for dessert. Okay. When the rooster crows at the break of dawn, look out your window and I'll be gone. You're the reason I'm traveling on, but don't think twice. It's all Okay, well, before Joan graces us with her presence, Ellie, I just want to like take a step back and ask you about your relationship with Joan. What, what is it that you love about her most? 
And how did you kind of come to her in the first place? Um, I came to her in the first place. I, I had to check this with my sister, but I went to see the Year of Magical Thinking at the National in London. And I must have been about 18 or 17 because it was 2008. Um, and it was the first one woman show I'd ever seen. And it was Vanessa Redgrave uh, and the David Hare production. And it was just phenomenal. So what what was that? What was it like watching that, Ellie? It was incredibly moving. Um, Vanessa Redgrave has this amazing ability to sort of fill the room and also look incredibly small and wounded and wrecked. Um, so she was sort of simultaneously majestic, but also destroyed. Uh, so I, I remember coming away, you know, feeling incredibly moved and I didn't know anything about Joan Didion and I realized it was based on this book that she had written and that she had written this play as well so I started reading um and I think you know I I kind of have a bit of a problem I guess with talking about why I love her because I know that she would hate it uh and I know that she hates the kind of sentimentality and gushiness of of a cult of Joan Didion and also, I guess one of the things she taught me is to be suspicious of things, suspicious of things that people adulate or love or are obsessed with. She is very suspicious of everything like that. So uh, in a way, it kind of feels almost, uh, it feels wrong to sort of say why I love her. Um, but I think, you know, ultimately as, as, a, as a writer myself, I think the discipline uh, the detachment, the way that she can write in this way that's very direct and, you know, there's active rather than passive verbs. Every single word counts. Every sentence is packed with detail. Um, so for me, if I'm having a bad writing day, I'll read something that she's written and it will give me the confidence to basically cut my work, edit it and chop it down and strip it back, um, which is something you know, she was brilliant at. So in that sense, I'm very attached to her. The writing on grief really shows an incredible ability to be a reporter in her own heart. You know, she's the, it's, it, there's nothing, you know, you mentioned her distaste for sentimentality and she's, she's just extraordinarily, from my perspective, um, it's it, balanced, I guess. And kind of, you know, she's an observer. She's a reporter. This is, you know, she's received criticism, I think, more recently, um, or her work has, by people who call her the ultimate white girl. And I think by that, they mean self-indulgent and kind of like a foreshadowing of Instagram. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's fair, because I do think that one of the most impressive qualities in her writing is this ability to, yes, you know, of course she does. I like how in the documentary that her, her nephew and niece put together, um, they use they talk about how um she she used the material you know whatever material was at hand she used the material and as a writer you are sometimes the material but even when she was the material i don't think she was giving herself a pass you know i think she was very much reporting on herself the way she reported on the beginnings of the hippie movement at haight ashbury in san francisco the way she was reporting on you know any of the people um who she interviewed yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's no pity there. There's no self-pity. Um, 
she's she's described actually by one of the doctors I think on the night that her husband died as a cool customer which is a kind of heartbreaking way to describe someone whose husband has just died at the dinner table in a very shocking way when their daughter is also in hospital elsewhere and and is very very ill um but I think that coolness kind of gets to the heart of her she's she's very cool in the sort of zeitgeisty sense and in the sense that you know people want to be like her and she has that kind of innate style but she's also very cool in the way that she can step back and observe without kind of any kind of pity um and I think you know it's it's interesting also when she puts uh when she's having a bad time with the when she's writing a draft, she puts it in the freezer yeah. when she needs a break, which I really love. I love that too. I do I love too. that. I'm gonna read a. I'm gonna read one sentence from On Self Respect because I think it sums some of this up quite well. The tricks that work on others count for nothing in that very lit back alley where one keeps assignations with oneself. You know, I think she, in her writing, it's a very well lit back alley, and she doesn't allow herself some of the things that I in her place might very well allow myself. Um, and that essay on self-respect, which is one of her most famous, interestingly, I, I learned this from the documentary, The Center Will Not Hold, the Netflix documentary I mentioned, which is fantastic, um, was one of her first pieces for Vogue. She won a contest uh, from Berkeley and went to work at Vogue in New York when she was 20 years old. And there was on the cover of the magazine, self-respect, you know, what it is and how to find it or something like that. And the person who was supposed to file this piece never did. And so they gave Joan, the newbie, the assignment to turn it around pretty quickly. So she didn't even choose that subject. Um, she was kind of their, you know, hero coming in with a with a piece. And the idea that somebody that young wrote this piece is, is really shocking. That's what's so amazing about that piece. I completely agree. I mean, what, she would have been in her 20s. She she wrote that piece not to the word count but to the character count, which is so impressive. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Okay, wait. I'm going to read one more short passage from it, and then I want to hear about some of Ali and Monica your favorite essays. But this one, this is just however long we postpone it, we eventually lie down alone in that notoriously uncomfortable bed, the one we make ourselves. Whether or not we sleep in it depends, of course, on whether or not we respect ourselves. I love that so much. She's so, like, to be 20? I don't know. <laughs> so good. Ellie, what are, what are some of your favorite? Yeah, what are your favorite essays? Joan essays. I, um, well, actually, it's a bit of an un... It's a bit of an unusual choice, perhaps, but I do love John Wayne, a love song, um, because I think it's as close to schmaltz as you'll ever get with Joan. Um, and you can tell that she really loves him. Uh, and there's a very sweet bit at the beginning where she says that although the men in her life have taken her to many places she has come to love, they have never been John Wayne and they have never taken me to that bend in the river where the cottonwoods grow. Um, there's lots of trees in Didion, by the way. Yeah. I, there are lots of avocado trees and cottonwoods and pepper trees. 
Um, but that's a kind of segue. But I, I love the dialogue in this essay. It's very funny. Mm, yeah. Um, and she kind of goes from talking about John Wayne as having this sexual authority so strong that even a child could perceive it. He's sort of like the ultimate American, um, you know, someone who changes his name, like creates this sort of aura around him. Um, and I, I think that gets to the heart of what she's fascinated by. Um, and, you know, she came from a family of, of settlers, of people who'd had to travel to escape something and find a new future. Um, and so I think it kind of gets to the heart of her, one of her enduring themes. Mm, and the idea of myth versus reality, you know, the idea that like even even John Wayne ends up being human um, and how and how disconcerting that is for her um, to have to, you know, think that about her, about this person who was such her a hero. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited for him to join us for ice cream and strawberries at the end of dinner. Yeah. Can't wait for that. Well, I'm going to jump in with one of my favorite essays, which I don't actually think is as well known, although I think it completely depends on the Didion reader. You know, there's so much to explore. But um, my one of my favorites um, appeals to me on a really personal level because I'm a migraine sufferer myself. And I have for, you know, I started having migraines when I was 16 and I since then have been trying to figure out what's causing them and been doing research on them and trying to find, you know, read up on them. And the only, like, I'm pretty sure the only encouraging thing, because they're drastically under-researched, whether that's because it's a female affliction or because it's one that will never actually kill you, um, it, it, you know, is open to interpretation. Um, but the only thing I've ever read that was mildly encouraging about migraines is written by Didion, and it's called, and it's called In Bed. Um, and she, she has her normal tone, but somehow manages to put her finger on the psychologically distressing aspects of migraine. I think I'm going to let her say it for herself. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a little excerpt. Excerpt. My husband also has migraine, which is unfortunate for him, but fortunate for me because nothing so tends to prolong an attack as the accusing eye of someone who has never had a headache. Why not take a couple of aspirin, the unafflicted will say from the doorway, or I'd have a headache too, spending a beautiful day like this inside with all the shades drawn. All of us who have migraine suffer not only from the attacks themselves, but from this common conviction that we are perversely refusing to cure ourselves by taking a couple of aspirin, that we are making ourselves sick, that we are, quote, bringing it on ourselves. And in the most immediate sense, the sense of why we have a headache this Tuesday and not last Tuesday, of course, we often do. There certainly is what doctors call a, quote, migraine personality, and that personality tends to be ambitious, inward, intolerant of error, rather rigidly organized, perfectionist. You don't look like a migraine personality, a doctor once said to me. Your hair is messy, but I suppose you're a compulsive housekeeper. Actually, my house is kept even more negligently than my hair, but the doctor was right nonetheless. Perfectionism can also take the form of spending most of a week writing and rewriting and not writing a single paragraph. Oh, I love that, Mon. I because I and, and it's interesting. It makes you think so much about 
who you are as a migraine person. And I am so not a perfectionist on many levels, but then actually you realize you you do maybe have a migraine personality. Anyway, it goes on and on. And I would recommend it to anyone who has migraines, but also to anyone who doesn't because it's just interesting. Very interesting. Great. Ellie, do you have migraines? No, I don't. But I think it's interesting that she has migraines and is able to sort of take herself out of the world. I always think, you know, when you have a migraine that like you really have to withdraw, you can't, you know, you can't just take an aspirin as, as, as she says, you have to go and lie in a dark room and get some ice and, and try and ride it out. And she talks a lot about how um, John, her husband is a kind of barrier between her, a protector, I think, between her and the world. And I wonder if the migraine is, is kind of linked to that feeling of her needed to be protected in some way, or, you know, she, she needs some cotton wool around her, you know, not, in, not, not in a kind of snowflakey way, but she, she, needs a, no, she needs a buffer zone. You know, she's like, just take the time to appreciate the convalescence, which she says at the end, and it's true. But anyway, let's get let's get off this because it only applies to like a certain amount of people, a certain cross segment of society who will go read this essay. On the subject of it only applying to a certain cross section of society, and you know, the the criticism again of Joan Didion as ultimate white girl, i.e., what does as, that even you know, mean? Individual, like, so I I think what it means as an accusation is and please correct me if you disagree, but the way I understand it is, you know, she is writing about a uniquely privileged position without fully, this is the accusation, this is not what I'm saying, without fully recognizing how privileged it is. And kind of, you know, the essay that I think could come under the most fire with an accusation like this is goodbye to all that. Um, Because in it, she kind of talks about how she, you know, the idea of running out of money is never really a concern. She thinks she could just start a syndicated column or, you know, go off and discover something. And it's this notion of freedom in the world and of freedom that that not everyone reading that would feel based on other, um, you know, reasons beyond their control. And I think the idea of like this, you know, beautiful white woman having these feelings and acting as if that's normal um, is offensive to some readers. And, you know, I'm just going to put a pin in that because that's, its own accusation and completely uh, just, you know, of course, everyone is welcome to their own opinion. But when I read that essay, and I do have, you know, there are feelings like that. It's, you know, they're, sure, it's a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Naive, but that's the point. You know, she's writing about youth. She's writing about no longer being in her early 20s and having been in her early 20s. And as a white woman, she can only, when she's writing about herself, express the experience of a white woman. You know, does that make her point of view less valid? To my mind, no. Um, particularly given her ability to, as we've talked about, you know, apply that the same sang-froid that she applies to other situations to herself and to her own youth and to different versions of herself. What do you think, Ellie? Yeah, I, 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 I think the phrase "ultimate white girl" comes from a piece in the Atlantic, uh, if I'm correct. And in the piece, it says, "For all her brilliance, she might be deemed too haughty to tolerate the ultimate white girl." Um, and I, I can kind of understand that, as you've said, there's this sort of elitist 
allure around her. Um, I think that's you know, more related has, to the people that love her of... than her. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, possibly. Yeah. Um, she has become talismanic of, you know, the people, the kind of people that can shop at Celine, for example, which is a very select part of society. Um, and also, you know, but I, I think that this is a sort of interesting thing that actually Zadie Smith wrote about in The New Yorker um, late last year, which is that um, we sort of willfully misunderstand Didion quite a lot. And a lot of what she was writing about, she's kind of joking about, or she's poking fun at it, or she's being wry about it or ironic about it. And it's not something to take at face value. There's always something going on under the surface that she's not saying, that she sort of wants you to tease out from the information she's giving you. So Slouching Towards Bethlehem is a good example. It's quite an uncomfortable read. Um, it's in the same way, Emma, you were saying about the other essay, you, you're kind of reading about 15 and 16-year-old runaways taking acid. Um, there's lots of elements where it almost seems like she might be poking fun at them or or presenting them for uh you know kind of putting him on a plate to be to be reviled or or irritated by there's no sense of sort of pity or empathy there which i think uh we probably judge her quite harshly on because she is a woman and that's maybe something that we we expect from a female writer um but again i i, I sort of see what you're saying as well i think it, it's unfair because actually she writes with this sort of complete authority in a way that not many women in the world do or have and as a young woman myself I find that inspiring mm, as do I and the humor the humor and the kind of wry you know almost at times self-deprecating awareness self-awareness you know I think of why I write which of course is an essay where she borrowed a title from Orwell and, you know, she says, in many ways, writing is the act of saying I, of imposing oneself upon other people, of saying, listen to me, see it my way, change your mind. It's an aggressive, even a hostile act. Um, and then she goes on to say how you can mitigate that. But she says, you know, at the end, it's an invasion and imposition of the writer's sensibility on the reader's most private space, which I love. Like that's, you know, to acknowledge that and admit that I've spent my career doing this because, you know, and it's such a kind of... Um, I, I just I, I think that's really honest and and great. Oh no, I just wanted to go back to slouching towards Bethlehem for one second because and the sympathy thing because I actually think that she does have sympathy in that essay. She has sympathy for the children involved, and I actually think that that comes yes. across. She doesn't have sympathy for the adults, ostensible adults who are putting the children in those situations. And Monica, that's I had the exact same because she has a two year old at home when yeah. she's in San Francisco reporting on this. And Ellie, to your point, the children are children. You know, the adults rather are children. They're 14, 15, 16. However, Monica, to your point, the minute you procreate, whether you do it on acid or not, you have to cease being a child and tend to the one you've made. And I think, you know, she's so the the scene of the, you know, not only the kindergartner on acid and that is horrifying, but the child who lights a mini fire and the parents are more concerned with the hash that fell through the hole in exactly. the floor made by the fire than with the child. You know, you can feel her horror, her human kind of, and it, and and that's, you know, the idea of like, okay, well done, you're in Never Never Land. However, Never Never Land ceases to exist the moment you have a child. 
And I think, yeah, there's this kind of glacial, David Hare talked in the documentary about, there's a kind of, the prose is glacial, but underneath there's so much feeling. So it's it's very formally written, but there's so much going on underneath the surface. And that's a good example of, you know, you 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 can feel her as a mother kind of thinking, oh my God, what am I looking at? But she frequently also knows that what she's seeing is is gold, as she calls yeah. it. And it's all good material, but she's definitely conflicted by that. And I think another essay that I love, uh, and I know we have to move on to the pudding and other elements <laughs> of the dinner, but is uh, there's just one essay called On Keeping a Notebook, where she basically makes fun of herself all the way through because it's just a random load of notes that she's made in her notebook that don't really seem to make any sense. Um, and there's one line in it where she which is something that I always think when I go into a fashion party where I don't really know anyone and I'm a bit scared um, it's it she's quoting Jessica Mitford's governess who apparently used to whisper in her ear before a party you're the least imper- important person in the room and don't forget it that's um, what you tell yourself before walking into a fashion party I mean you must be like <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be telling myself oh, okay. that. It just pops into my ear. And suddenly I'm thinking, oh, God, like everyone is so important here. So oh, no. you are really important. <laughs> I love that. I think that's, that's, that's great. And that's, as an observer, that is, you know, the idea is that you are the lens, right? You're not necessarily the yeah, performer. You're not the state. center of attention. Exactly. You should be watching. I have a question for Monica, which is maybe you can answer this. What's with the dark glasses? Like even in interviews and things, can we talk about that? Is it is it a Mitford thing of like I my eyes are too kind, I have to hide them? Or no, it's a migraine <laughs> thing, I think. Oh, so if you yeah. have, I don't know this, but I would suspect maybe she says it at some point. So if you have like really, really, she she had more migraines than I have so far ever had um like per month and so she if you get something called I forget what the technical term for it is but basically when you like look really quickly at the sun and you know when you look away and you see flashing lights that can Mm -hmm. bring on migraines and actually like ocular migraines in the beginning of a migraine you often see flashing lights anyway so you just don't want to if you're really susceptible to migraines or if you're in a period of migraine recurring migraine like a lot of migrainers wear sunglasses like I can't even in the winter I can't really walk around in the sun without sunglasses it just like it just it just it's very uncomfortable for me so I would imagine that that's what it's all about you know the day destroys the night night divides the day try to run try to hide break on through to the other side break on through to the other side We've had a delicious dinner. We've had ice cream with John Wayne. We're going to go for a spin now in the yellow Corvette where we all cram into the back, including John. (laughs) Was she a big drink? Hang on. How, like, are we, we're kind of, we're kind of loose, aren't we? I feel like they like to, like to drink those Oh, you're thinking maybe oh, yeah. better drive. Well, oh, I'm wondering who's driving. I'm wondering what our tipple has been. Well, you can be the designated driver, yeah, if you want. I, well, for, I don't have a driver's license. I think Harrison Ford. 
And we can ask him to drive us up to Malibu to show us from the Hollywood house, to show us the, the veranda that he built as their contractor. What do That's you guys an think? excellent, Great. excellent idea. Very into that. <laughs> well, oh my goodness. Well, I think that Joan will be showing up imminently. So we better get setting the table. Positions. What was the tablecloth, Ellie, that we were going to use? Oh, we were going to use a tablecloth, an organdy, organdy, organdy. Don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, the one, like when she walks into her husband's childhood home, she sees these beautiful tablecloths, and they're all starched and perfect, like they've come straight from the from the dry cleaner. So we need those, and we need orchids on the table because she really likes orchids. Mm, and I do like the detail from Goodbye to All That with the the yellow silk curtains that she tried hanging in her New York apartment that were constantly wet with New York rainwater. I think that I think she'd appreciate the East Coast touch. Yeah, I agree. Um, one also, one thing I wanted to add um, is that I was wondering when you introduced me, if you could not introduce me as Ellie, because I've just discovered that her dog was called Ellie and it's just put me on the back foot immediately. Oh my goodness. So what shall we call you? Well, my real name's actually Helen. No. But perfect. no one calls me that. Perfect. But you it's a bit more me. sophisticated. Yeah. So you can And call actually me that Helen. In, and we'll have to introduce her as Joan Dunn. Correct? Exactly. Yeah. She preferred to be introduced by her married name. Did she? Yeah, apparently she felt very strongly about it. That's interesting, Helen. <laughs> I've just realized that I was really, being really silly asking what kind of drinks we would have when she, there's this brilliant essay, and I can't remember which one, but the one where she's talking about entertaining in this madhouse where she talks about how rock stars only order bizarre drinks. Oh, I love that. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's so, so I think we should all have oh, a we've got to have rock star bizarre drink. rock star drink. Like She's like, no rock star ever just asks for a beer or a glass of wine. It's always something really <laughs> yeah. Our time is up and Joan's about to arrive, so we better we better get cracking. Oh, Lace I'm so nervous. I know, oh. me too. It's going to be fine. John Wayne and Harrison Ford will be there. It'll be great. What are we going to talk about? Hopefully movies, I was thinking. Oh, and what not to talk about. Uh, I, maybe feminism and politics, because apparently she voted Republican. Yeah, yeah she was from a Republican family. Here, guys, eat some almonds. It's really almost time. I'm going to run into the kitchen and chop some parsley. Okay, go, go, go. You've got mail. You've got mail. Please hit me. Hit me with the contents of the inbox. This is from Rosemary. Hi, Monica and Emma. I have a fashion question for you. As I near 30, I find myself peering into my closet. Oh, youth, youth, the sweet taste of youth. As I near 30, I find myself peering into my closet more and more and wondering at what age might I want to consider limiting or phasing out my use of the mini skirt? 
While I'm a great supporter of women dressing however they want to at any age, of course, there is still a place in my heart for some of the more traditional rules of elegance in fashion. And bearing that in mind, I was curious to know your thoughts on what the general cutoff age might possibly be for sporting a mini. Thank you for your time. Loving the podcast, Rose. And then she adds a PS. You were asking for episode ideas. Here I go. Fashion advice from Monica and recipe advice from Emma on seasonal dinner parties. Summer outdoor dining, for example. What do I wear and what do I serve? And very aptly, dressing pregnant advice episode. Wow. She's a, she's a psychic. She is very much, yes, into future telling and predictions, clearly. That's so impressive, Rose. But I also really like her sign-off. IDK, I you both clearly know what you're doing and I'm here for it. I mean, we don't, but thank you so much, Rose. Your vote of confidence is hugely appreciated. Thanks, that reminds Rose. me in, in You've Got Mail where he's like, Rose, that's a lovely name, Rose. Now take this credit card and swipey, swipey through the credit card. Sorry. Oh my gosh. Happy Thanksgiving, Rose. <laughs> it's your That's turn to really... say happy Thanksgiving back. Oh, I happy love that Thanksgiving part. back. Anyway, <laughs> Rose, it's great to hear from you. Emma, do you have opinions about the miniskirt? I do have opinions about the miniskirt, and I know you do also. Yeah. Well, you go first. Well, so first of all, Rose, I appreciate very much the desire to recognize that with age should come perhaps a certain dignity in dressing. Um, or just general of, dignity. Perhaps general dignity. And, you know, at the age of 33, I am still learning what exactly that looks like. I've stopped wearing my hair to my waist. This was a first step. <laughs> there are a few other things that I still need to integrate. So I think for me, you know, I'm impressed that you're only nearing 30 and you're already contemplating how to dress like a grown-up because I'm well past it and I'm still integrating some of these rules. Um, I think that the mini skirt should be worn until, really, until you're sick of it. Uh, I love a mini skirt. You had mentioned in the fashion episode about proportions. And so, you know, if you're worried that the mini skirt, first of all, you, you should only ever go as mini as you're comfortable with. Um, so for some people, a mini skirt is anything above the knee. And, you know, it doesn't have to be the absent skirt from Bridget Jones. Skirt off work today, skirt off, off sick. It doesn't, have to, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that skirt. It can be as mini as you please. You can wear a very opaque black tight and, a, a you know, a more um, a voluminous top yeah. to counterbalance the mininess exactly. of the skirt, but I think I would I think I would want to be pulling that off well into my Phoebe Philo campaign um, when <sighs> I'm. Don't you think? I mean, yeah, totally. I also think that the mini skirt has been such a symbolic um, statement over you know through the ages that it just feels wrong to diminish it or discourage anyone from assuming a mini skirt should they feel so inclined you know unfortunately and this is not our fault it's like pervy people gross disgusting people's fault you know something that you're scared to wear on the tube like you can wear tights i love tights by the way I, we've talked about it many times but tights are very um a very controversial topic in the fashion industry, but I'm a pro tights person, and I think that it solves that problem pretty immediately, and it can look really chic. Uh, and and again, yeah, maybe I would say 
if I were getting my legs all the way out, I wouldn't get my cleavage out. I would probably pick one or the other. It's a good way of balancing things. Don't you think? That's and a good segue into dressing while pregnant. Exactly. <laughs> my unhideable cleavage. My plunging neckline. I mean, dressing while pregnant is like a whole thing and I'm actually preparing a piece about it. Um, I'm going to write something. It is such a minefield because if you're, especially if you're like me and sort of a pair of uh, high-ish waisted jeans is your kind of go-to everyday look um, with a shirt tucked in, like just you just can't do that. I think that I'm going to have an easier time this pregnancy, not only because I have experience, but also because I'm going to be more heavily pregnant during the summer. So you can just always wear a dress, basically. Stay tuned because I have some pretty serious thoughts. I'll I'll be updating my Instagram account with uh, pregnancy outfit ideas over the next, you know, five and a half months. And Inspired um, by Bad Girl Riri? Obviously directly inspired by Bad Girl Riri. No, but I have to say, that's I'm really glad you brought her up because I think that she is admirable. I mean, that is not, it's just not my style pregnant or not but I love I agree it's amazing and I think it's, it's amazing so great uh, like you know this is written been written all about an American Vogue but it's so great that we're not you know condemning the pregnant woman to sort of a, a an awkward embarrassing body that must be hidden under a muumu like that that needs to go the way of a lot of other old-fashioned frankly quite anti-feminist ideas mm. agreed Agreed. It's really cool. And that I doesn't mean. I just, sorry, can I just add one more thing? That doesn't mean that please. to, to um, look cool while pregnant, you need to be wearing like a pink stretchy mini dress like Riri. Like I get that mo- a lot of people just wouldn't feel comfortable wearing the, that dress even not pregnant or either way. Um, but, you know, just letting your creativity fly, whether you are with child or not, I think is just so important if you love fashion and and want to feel confident. Mm. Yeah, it relates to the mini skirt conundrum too, doesn't it? It's kind of like, it's what you're comfortable with. You know, we all are going to have our own thresholds, but there's no more need to anymore, hopefully, hide because you're pregnant um, or because you're over 30, (laughs) you know? Rose, thank you. Um, And in terms of outdoor slash summer dinner party ideas, I mean, we've just had one. Parsley salad cucumber sandwiches overcooked meats for Monica yeah please. <laughs> and um, uh no we will that's that's a really it's it's something to be revisited uh I do believe for for a future episode it's a great great notion thank you thank and you and just Rose. a reminder yes thank you Rose anyone uh who has thoughts feelings ideas suggestions we are super keen to hear from you fanfare fanmail at gmail.com And if you like us, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. And if you know someone who doesn't like us, stop them from rating or reviewing us on iTunes. (laughs) I'm just joshing. Uh, Taser them. (laughs) No, 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 no. Peaceable (laughs) solutions. Um, Thank you so much for tuning in. And we will be back with season two in the blink of a very slow eye. (laughs) Bye. Bye. (laughs)